Good evening. This is Patrick Donahue. We appreciate you listening every week at this same time to Bible Crossfire. We hope that we're going to be preaching what the truth is of God's Word and not just what men say, because there's all kinds of differences. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now, there's two or three things we can learn from that passage, at least. First of all, Scripture is inspired of God. I like to use the illustration. You have an executive of a company wants to write a letter to another company, and he either dictates it to his secretary or he writes it out in longhand, and the secretary types it. When they get ready to sign that letter right before it's mailed, the executive is going to be the one to sign the letter. Now, the secretary may type her initials on there to say that she typed it, but the real author of the letter is the executive of the company. He told the secretary what to type. Well, it's the same way with the Bible when it says Scripture is inspired of God. God is the real author. He told the human authors, Moses, David, Peter, uh, John, he told them what to say. God is the real author. They're more like the secretaries. They, they took the words down that God told them to say. And it says the scripture is profitable for doctrine. We're talking about what the doctrine of Christ is. And you remember 2 John 9 says if you don't abide in the doctrine of Christ, you don't have God. So you can't be saved unless you abide in the doctrine, the teaching of Christ. This says the scripture is what's profitable for doctrine. Not what the Pope says, not what church tradition says, not what any particular preacher might say, not what is necessarily what we think is best or what is the most politically correct. The only thing profitable, profitable for doctrine is Scripture. So on this program, that's all we're going to use to try to prove doctrine is Scripture. Then it says that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. The Scriptures are sufficient in religion, we might say, in Christianity. It, they, it gives us everything we need to know. Thoroughly furnishes us into all good works. Everything we need to know religiously is taught by the Bible, uh, either specifically or generically. It will lead us in doing the right things religiously. It doesn't tell us everything about physics. It's not going to tell us necessarily that F equals MA, but it's going to tell us everything we need to know to practice Christianity correctly, what to do to be saved, how God would want us to worship him, uh, how to live our everyday lives uh, morally. The scripture is going to, is completely, will thoroughly furnish us into that information. The scriptures is what we're after. If you, as the announcer said, now, if you have a Bible question, any Bible topic is fair game. Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. 877-655-6755 if you have a Bible question or a comment. Now, while we're waiting on the first call, I thought we'd talk about, to begin with, Romans 3, verses 23 through 26. Now, if you're looking at many of the translations of verse 25, like the King James Version, which I'm using, and a number of translations, you'll see about the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. The ninth word in verse 25 of Romans 3 is the word propitiation. Propitiation, that's kind of a long, complicated uh, theological word, isn't it? it? Most people wouldn't know what the definition of that word is without looking it up. So I looked it up. And according to dictionary.com, the word propitiation means by which it becomes consistent 
with his character, talking about God's character, to pardon the sinner. That definition for this word in verse 25 presents kind of a dilemma. Let's say you go back to when my son, my oldest son, was seven years old. And I say, Heath, if you do that, you're going to get a spanking. And he continues to do it. I don't spank him. Heath, if you do it again, I'm going to spank you. He does it again. I still don't spank him. Heath, if you continue to do that, I'm going to spank you. He continues to do it, and I still don't spank him. Would you have any respect for me as a father if you saw that, me just making idle threats to my son and not following through on those threats? I don't think Heath would have any respect for me. Now, he may be glad as a little boy that he was getting out of a spanking, but he wouldn't have any respect for his dad if I kept threatening to spank him. And never doing it. And this verse, this passage is talking about the same way with God. If God is just going to let us off the hook like that, he says the wages of sin is death, but he's just going to forgive us. He's letting us off the hook. How can we respect him? Well, the answer in this passage, and we're going to talk about the details in a minute. The answer in this passage is that he can let us off the hook. He can forgive us and still remain just because Jesus paid the penalty for us. He took the spanking force. So God can let us out of the spanking and still remain just because Jesus took our punishment, our spanking force. Rick from Nevada, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Yes, sir. I was just wondering, I know the Bible talks about it in a lot of places about snakes or as far as the kind of as if they're evil. But the question I got is we bought our grandkids a little ball python, and he loves it. But I don't know if we're if it's wrong to, you know, if they, are we supposed to hate snakes because they're considered? I know it's refers to the serpent. I don't, I don't know. So in Genesis three, when it says the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, it was talking about Satan in the form of a snake. Now myself, aside from what the Bible says, I don't particularly like to hang around snakes. I'm afraid they're going to bite me. And if they're poisonous, that can lead to a lot of damage. So I, I don't think I'd want a python around and use... They're not considered to be good pets. I wouldn't do it. But that's just my opinion. The Bible doesn't... It wasn't talking about the actual snake itself when it said it tempted Adam and Eve. That was Satan in the form of a snake. So to me, having a snake around is it's not against the Bible per se... It's, it would be like having a, I mean, what would what would you have if you had a tiger around as your pet? Well, you, you know, you can't really tame a tiger. If you go to sleep next to the tiger, you might end up getting eaten while you're asleep. Now, my dog, I have a, a dog. I can, I can go to sleep next to my dog, and my dog's not going to hurt me because he's tame. But you don't tame tigers yes, and snakes, I don't think. So I, I probably wouldn't be partial to having right. one as a pet. doesn't have really much to do with the Bible, though, because the snake in the Bible in Genesis 3, is not talking about just that animal. It's talking about Satan in the form of the snake. And we should be very wary of, of that snake, of that of Satan. He, the Bible talks about him going about, walking about as a roaring lion, looking to see who he can, he can tempt and try to bring down. And that's one of the reasons we have this program is to inform people about what Christianity is about and not let Satan deceive them into thinking, well, gay marriage is okay. Women preachers are okay. It's okay to sprinkle babies for baptism. These issues, Satan is behind those things if they're not in the scriptures. And we're trying to
encourage everybody to get back to the scriptures okay. away from the serpent we read about in Genesis 3, Satan, and what he's trying to mislead people into. Rick, you got any follow-up? Okay. Yes, sir. I, I, I just want to say I love your program. I listen to you guys every, every day. I drive truck and out here, and I really love your program. It inspires me to try to live just so much more for, for Jesus. And I just thank you for everything, and I just... Um, uh, I, I'm going through some medical stuff. I, I'm just um, wondering if you could keep me keep me in your prayers as far as that goes. And um, other than that, I just God bless you guys, and I, I love you guys. Rick, thank you for that uh, encouragement. I tell you what, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna try to call you after the program and just find out a little bit more about you. Hopefully, then I can pray for you as you've asked and know what the situation is. I don't want you to tell me what it is on the on the air, but I'll call you. We'll talk about it, and then I can pray for you. Okay, Rick? I, 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 I appreciate you. Thank you so much, sir. All right. Expect Thank a call you. from me within maybe 30 minutes of the, of, uh, of the time this program goes off the air, okay? Thank you so much. Thanks for your call, Rick. Good call by Rick. He appreciates the program, and we appreciate our listeners. As I've said many times, if it was just me up here preaching, I'm pretty sure, even though I hope that I'm preaching the truth, I'm pretty sure that I would bore you guys pretty badly. So that's why I always let the callers have priority. If there's a call coming in, I stop what I'm talking about as quick as I can and give the caller because I think the caller the opportunity because I think the callers and their different questions and their different discussion points, that's what makes the program interesting and keeps everybody from falling asleep. Appreciate you listening. If you have a Bible question or comment, you're helping me by calling in. And if you have a good, intelligent, Bible question, because you want to know the answer, let's have it. The number to call is 877-655-6755. The number to call, if you want to get on the air with your Bible question, is 877-655-6755. So we're discussing Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. And we talked about the word propitiation what it means there in verse 25. And I think we see that definition borne out by the passage. So I'm going to start reading in verse 23 here and see if that's so. It says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. So, so far it's talked about Jesus redeeming us from sin with his blood. And then it says at the end of verse 25, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Here's what I think that's saying. God forgave people in Old Testament times based upon a sacrifice, a payment for sin, Jesus' death that was to come later. So when Jesus came and actually paid for those sins, it declared God righteous for forgiving all those sins in times past. Let me illustrate. Before we all had credit cards, there were a lot of people would have charge accounts at the store. Let's say my wife had a charge account at the grocery store. She could go and charge groceries once a week and take those groceries home and cook them and we could eat them. And you didn't have to pay for them. They just put them on the account. At the end of the month, then they sent me a bill. And then when I went and paid that bill to the grocery store owner, that made me a righteous man. Because if I hadn't paid the, if I hadn't paid the, uh, the bill, then the grocery store owner would have considered me a dishonest person for taking all those groceries and not paying for them. When I paid for it, I was considered righteous. Well, it's the same way with God. 
When you have these people in the Old Testament, like David, who sinned with Bathsheba, had her husband killed, Nathan confronted him, David repented, God forgave him. How? On what basis? On the basis of the death of Christ that was to come later. So when Christ actually came and paid for those sins and he died, that declared God righteous for forgiving David and all those other Old Testament saints of their sins when they repented because he forgave them based upon a payment was coming. So when the payment was actually made by the death of Christ, that made God righteous and just for forgiving all those Old Testament saints through the centuries. You see that? We're going to come back to that in a minute, but let's try to take this call. Cynthia from Michigan, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. What was what what was Jesus doing when he was in hell for three days? Okay, now, now technically, he wasn't in H-E-L-L. He was in Hades. I'm going to Acts chapter 2, and in verse... Um, in verse 30, Acts 2, it says, Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he should raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, neither did his flesh see corruption. So, Jesus was in Hades, and you remember when he was talking to the thief on the cross, he said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. He yeah. was talking about the good part of Hades. If you examine Luke chapter 16 and the story of the rich man and Lazarus, you see that the rich man went into the into the part of Hades that was torment. Lazarus went into the part of Hades that was comfort or Abraham's bosom. So Hades is the part is the place that dead people go today to wait on the judgment day. There's two parts. The good part, all of those who go there will end up going to heaven later on the judgment day. All that go to the torment part of Hades will go to the uh, to H-E-L-L on the judgment day. And so Jesus and the thief were in the good part of Hades, the comfort part. Now, you know I said all that, but I still didn't answer your question. I really don't know what Jesus was doing for those three days, about three days, that he was in Hades. I really don't know, Cynthia, but he was there and he was resurrected on the third day. Okay. Could have been talking to the thief or anybody else. Who knows? I don't know. Okay. Okay, thank you. It's a good you. question. But but if you know, do you know a verse that might say what Jesus was doing yep. those three days he was in Hades? I, I do not. I do not. I was just wondering, you know. The, I had heard you know, there may be. It. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, no. I, I was listening to a sermon earlier, and it was talking about how he went to hell for three days for us. And I was wondering, what was he doing in hell for three days? Well, he actually went to Hades, but he was in the good part, the comfort part of Hades, not the torment part. But there may be a verse saying what he was doing during those three days, but I don't know about the verse. I can't remember a verse that talks about it. So for right now, I'm going to say the Bible doesn't say. But somebody could prove okay. me wrong by bringing up a verse that I've overlooked that said, here's what he would do. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes we have to say, I don't know. Sometimes the Bible doesn't tell us the answer to every question. I say, call in with your Bible question. We'll try to give you a Bible answer. But Deuteronomy 29, 29, Cynthia says the secret things belong to God. So not every question is answered by the Bible. Only the things that the Bible says we need to know 
to live pleasing mm-hmm. God is in the that's in the okay. Bible. That's there all we need. Okay, Cynthia? Okay. Thank you so much. Appreciate your call. Mm-hmm. Bye bye. Another good call. Sorry, I could not answer the question um, completely. But if you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. 877-655-6755. So we were looking at Romans chapter 3, 25 through, 23 through 26, and we were talking about how that Jesus is our propitiation, meaning he is able to forgive us. The means Jesus, his death is the means by which God is able to forgive us and still remain just. Uh, God forgave all those Old Testament saints of their sins when they repented based upon a future sacrifice. So when Jesus came and made that sacrifice, he paid for those sins. That declared God righteous, verse 25, for all the times he had forgiven people in times past because those sins needed to be paid for, and Jesus came and paid for them. Now, I think we see the same idea in verse 26. It says, To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. There's that dilemma we talked about earlier. How can God justify the believer and still remain just? How can he just let us off the hook? Remember, he said, as, as I mentioned, he says the wages of sin is death. How can he forgive us if the... If he said the wages of sin is death, how can he let us off the hook? Because Jesus paid the penalty for us. In my illustration with my son, Jesus took the spanking for us. And so that's why God doesn't have to spank us for our sins, because Jesus took the spanking for us. Now, that doesn't apply to everybody. It only applies to people who trust and obey. Many passages teach that, like 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. We have to know God. And we have to obey the gospel. The only people who take advantage of the death of Christ and don't receive the spanking that they deserve because Jesus took the spanking for them are those who trust and obey God. If you have a Bible question or comment, please call us at 877-655-6755. I want to look at some related passages to Romans chapter 3 while we still have some time left. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 is the next passage I want to look at. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. You know, John 1 29 says, Jesus is the Lamb of God. John the Baptist said that. How is that an accurate description of Jesus? Because in the Old Testament, the animal, this, this lamb, an immature sheep, was sacrificed for sin. But Jesus is the real sacrifice, the final sacrifice, the the only effectual sacrifice. He takes the place of all animal sacrifices. So in that sense, he's the Lamb of God. He's the sacrifice for sin. This verse says Christ is our Passover. 1 Corinthians 5 or 7. How is he our Passover? Well, I think there's another analogy being made. Back to the Passover in Exodus 12. You remember the 10th plague, the final plague that finally convinced Pharaoh to the, let, let the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery. We call it the death of the firstborn. The angel of death is going to come through, and and the firstborn child of every household is going to die. But God tells the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb. Exodus twelve. Put a little do- her. Put a little blood from that lamb on the door side of the door. I think I may have the details a little bit off. But when the angel of death comes through, when he sees the blood on the door, he'll quote pass 
over Hebrews chapter 7, I think verse 12 or 13. He will pass over that house and not kill the firstborn child. So all the Israelites knew to do that. None of them lost their firstborn child. The Egyptians didn't do that. They all lost their firstborn child, including the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh himself. And so how is Jesus then our Passover? Well, just like when God saw the blood of that lamb on the door, uh, he passed over them and didn't kill the firstborn child of that house. When God sees the blood of Christ, when it comes time for God to hand out just retribution for our sins, God passes over us when he sees the blood of Christ. So in that sense, Christ is our Passover. Herb from Texas, go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. Well, the answer to that fellow's question before, where Christ went to speak to those in the days of Noah, in First Peter three nineteen. Yeah, but Herb, that says by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Okay, it's not saying that Jesus preached to them while they were in prison. Prison, which is probably talking about Hades. This is talking about, if you notice the context, God preaching to these people through Noah while they were alive. But by the time this book is written, Herb, they're in prison. So God preached to these spirits that are in prison now, as of the time of the writing, which would, we'll say, be 65 AD. That's when they're in prison, when the, when the book was written. But the time that he preached to them, Herb, was through Noah, based upon the context, Way back yonder. So he didn't preach to them while they were in Hades, while they were in prison. He preached to them while they were alive. And then they're in prison by the time that Peter writes this book. And we know that, uh, Herb, because passages like, and I'm sure you'll agree, passages like Revelation 14, 13 say, Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. In other words, our fate is sealed when we die, you don't get a second chance after you die to accept Christ and switch from being in the bad place to heaven. You know what I mean, Herb? Yep. Same thing in Second Corinthians 5.10. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So on the judgment day, you already I know you already know this, Herb. We're going to be judged based upon the things done in our body while we were alive, whether they're good or bad. Now, we have a lot of preachers that say you won't be judged based upon what you did. It's only whether or not you believe. No, you you are going to be judged based upon whether or not you believe. But you're also going to be judged based upon what you've done, whether it was good or bad. But, Herb, it's going to be the things that we did in our body. So not after we live. And that's how I know that First Peter 3.19, Herb, is talking about. God preaching through Noah while these people were alive, not after they're dead. Now, by the time the book is written, they're in prison, Hades. But the preaching didn't occur at that time. The preaching occurred thousands of years before that. You follow me, Herb? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate you call, your call because that, that's an interesting question. A lot of people would like to know what First Peter 3.19 is teaching. And by the way, I have an article that talks about this idea of many times – the Bible will talk about things that uh, that 
happen like it'll say when he's calling the, well, just to give you an example. I'm going to Matthew chapter 10, Herb, where he's calling the 12 apostles. I may not have time for this, but he says he's calling the 12 apostles in Matthew 10 verse 4 says, and Judas Iscariot who also betrayed him. Well, he didn't hadn't betrayed Jesus at up to that point when he called the apostles, but he betrayed him by the time the book of Matthew was written. You follow me, Herb? Yeah. Herb, I'm gonna have you left to go. I got let you go. I got to get off the air. Appreciate your call. Yep. If you would like to have a free one-hour phone Bible study with me at your convenience, I want you to call or text me at two five six six eight two. Nine seven five three. I appreciate you listening every week at this same time. I appreciate all the calls. Like I said, I think it would be a pretty boring program without these calls. Appreciate you listening. But if you'd like to have a free one-hour phone Bible study with me just about any time, whatever's convenient for you, call or text me at 256-682-9753.